This morning we're going to start a discussion. We talked about doing this for the last month or so of taking uh, at least once a month different topics that you all have suggested and thinking about them from a biblical perspective. And so uh, the topic that was suggested about what is what is the sort of like what is the Bible's attitude on um, how we talk, on how often and in what ways we joke with each other, when and whether sarcasm is appropriate. And so what I want to start with is the larger question of what our speech should look like. And so if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, familiar passage here, but one that I think is important for us to look at and think about in connection with this topic. And so if someone would be willing to read verses 25 to 32 for us, someone would be willing to read that. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Bob, go ahead. Therefore, ridding yourselves of falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. But if there is any good word for edification, according to the need of the moment, say that, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. All right. So what are some things that we notice right off the bat about the way that we are supposed to talk to one another? Speak truth. Okay, speak truth. All right. Uh, whether this is the best way to word it or not, um, when my grandpa was doing marriage counseling, he would say, that the principle of communication that we find in this passage is be honest. So what does that specifically look like? Sometimes we feel like that looks like I'm just going to give people a piece of my mind, right? But that tends to be, we tend not to be speaking the truth in those moments, or we tend to be speaking the truth with the wrong manner. So what does it say here about... Um, the motivation uh, of why we're doing all these things. Jump back to chapter 4 and verse 2. What's our, what's our manner or our characteristic for all these commands that Paul lays out? Humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. What else? Okay, Jonathan? In love, okay? So we're supposed to be speaking the truth with the context of building unity, motivated by, characterized by love, all those sorts of things. So this is not, I'm really upset about something, so I'm going to give you a piece of my mind, right? This is, I am wanting to speak in a way that is helping someone else to grow closer to God, okay? So, we're going to get to that as well as we get into chapter 5. 
So one of the principles that we see here is that we're supposed to speak truth. Okay, We are members of each other. So if this person has a problem, it affects me. If I have a problem, it affects that person. So we need to be speaking truth with a manner of love in order to accomplish God's goal of building each other up. What role does anger play in the way that we speak to each other? Look at verse uh, 26. What role does anger play? What is it supposed to help accomplish? Jonathan? Okay? So think about Jesus cleansing the temple. When he was angry with the sinful things that they were doing, what did that spur him on to do? Take action to do what? Xander? Okay? Right. So he dealt with the problem, right? What we often do is we get upset about something, and then instead of solving the problem, we go and gossip with someone about someone, we yell at the person that we have a problem with, all those sorts of a thing. And in this case, Jesus' anger was righteously motivated, but he directs it towards solving the problem of God's house being turned into a place of corruption and greed, right? So, yes. Right. Whereas a lot of times we're angry for the wrong reasons. We're not angry against the sin, we're angry against the person who is sinning instead of being angry against the sin. Or sometimes it's just we're frustrated because we've been inconvenienced and our anger is kind of driven more by frustration and what I want being thwarted. But yes, do we have right motivation anger? Don't give the, give the devil an opportunity. It gives the example about stealing in verse 28. We've talked about that a number of times in the past. Uh, number 29, verse 29. What sort of things are we not supposed to say? Let no what? Unwholesome. Corrupt communication, unwholesome words. What do you think that means? Well, look at the second part of the verse. It's set in contrast with words which do what? Build someone up, okay? So, if I see someone and I'm trying to think of a good illustration here. Let's say someone is, is they've got young kids, they're rushing into church, everything appears to be in disarray. And I walk up to that person, I'm like, hey, barely made it today, huh? Is that building that person up? No. Even if it is true, which it may very well be, because any of you who have had young kids understand that sometimes you're just barely getting where you need to go. But even if it's true, it's not helpful, it's not edifying, it would in that instance, I believe, be an unwholesome word or a corrupt communication. Because you're not building the person up, encouraging them in their walk with God. You're not giving grace to them in the moment when they're already discouraged and overwhelmed. You're just saying the first thing that pops in your head because you thought it'd be funny. And maybe it was, but just because it is and you get a sense of gratification out about it doesn't mean it's the right thing to say. 
He says, don't grieve the spirit of God. And so I think we tend to think of that as a disconnected kind of thing. So, you know, we'll take these as sort of separate commands. Don't steal, say the right stuff, don't grieve the spirit of God. But the fact that it comes right after the way that we talk, if God's goal is for our gathering to be something that builds one another up, and instead it's an opportunity in which we are discouraged and Satan's plans for disunity and discouragement are put forward instead, that probably grieves the Spirit of God, right? So, um, if God's done a work in you and God's doing a work in that other person, the way that you talk matters because it either contributes to or takes away from God's work. And in fact, he says in verse 31, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander along with all malice. And in the context, it's potentially those things expressed in the way that we talk to each other, although that's not a 100% guarantee. It, it could be a transition to something else. But all of these things are set sort of alongside each other, put away wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, wanting something bad to happen to another person. In contrast, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, because Christ has forgiven you. So if God has shown forgiveness to you, you need to give grace to those around you, including the way you speak, and maybe even especially in the way you speak. Bob? Would you say that Probably. I, I think it's very clear it's a matter of showing wisdom because Proverbs says if you answer a matter before you hear it, it's folly and shame to you, right? But that, I think, is set in the context of two people coming to a court case. All the evidence hasn't been given, but I think it has application to the way that we talk. So if somebody starts to say something, you blurt out the first response that you had, you don't let them finish, then I think there's a very real sense in which, yes, you are not giving them grace. I'm trying to think if there's a verse that would specifically say that. There's probably some that get at that idea. Um, but yeah, we part of it is slowing down and not immediately saying the first response that comes to mind. Let's keep going in chapter 5 because I think some of these other ideas will come out too. Uh, chapter 5, look at verse 3. Chapter 5, 1 and 2 is walk in love, you're imitating God. Verse 3, immorality, impurity, or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Some people have taken this verse to say if you mention any of those things, it's evil. And I think it's better to look at it not as if you mention any of these things, it's evil, but rather more along the lines of they ought not be a regular topic of conversation because they characterize your life. In other words, as Christians, we shouldn't be living in ways that are immoral or impure or greedy. And so um, what does this look like in terms of application? Uh, we've had unsaved coworkers, family, friends who are talking about, you know, their immoral relationships and, and the things that they did. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, one of my, one of my, it was like an extended family reunion. One of my cousins was there and he said off, made an offhand comment about, you know, going down, he was going to go to the beach or something. And, Somebody just blurts out the first thing that they thought of, and like, oh, going to check out the girls or something along those lines, right? I think that's the sort of thing we as Christians ought not be saying, right? What does it mean to name impurity? I think there's a couple of different directions we could go with that. I think greed's more obvious, so let's take that one. Um, 
if the entirety of the subject of our conversation is here's what I have, here's my stuff, in a way that provokes other people to be jealous of and want whatever things God has given me, then I'm probably saying it because I'm bragging and they're not being edified by me saying that because all they're, all they're being driven toward is I wish I had that, I wish I wanted that, and they're being discontent, right? And so if that's the sort of speech that characterizes our conversation, that's not edifying and encouraging and helping people either. Bob? Which word? Name. Sure. So yeah. Just thinking about it from that perspective. Sure. We are not to be talking about it as something that falls into that category. Right. So um, if, you, if you're talking about the subject of objectionable elements in literature, right, if you ever read a book and someone swears in the context of the book, maybe it's a war novel or something, those of you who have been in the military understand there's a lot of swearing in the context of the military for a lot of people. So if you, or if you worked in a factory or any of those, there's, there's, there you, there's things that you encounter, right? The statement of a fact of here's what someone said is not in and of itself the thing that's being prohibited here. It's to the point that Bob was making. It's the, I want to act in this way. This is a, a attitude of my life, you know, those sorts of things. All right, we got to keep moving because i got several more passages to show you. Um, he says in verse 4, No filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So there are ways of talking that are filthy or impure. Um, I think what comes to mind in that is the sorts of things that have been kind of the subject of uh, you know those videos on YouTube and Facebook about school board meetings why is this book in my kids school why are they learning about these sorts of things that probably falls into that category um, the idea of silly talk um, you have something that's empty and worthless and I think maybe the illustration that comes to mind of this is if you've ever been really tired and it's really late the sort of comments that you make at that point that you think are uproariously funny, um, if that's the sum total of the way that we talk to people, everything's a joke, everything's silly, everything's foolish, we're not accomplishing God's goals for us being around them and encouraging them and all those sorts of things. We're going to get to the idea of, of sobriety and all those passages in just a moment. And then the idea of coarse jesting, right? There are, um, there are ways of joking and having a reverence for things that are either private or holy and when we talk in a way that's constantly mocking those kinds of things it is not a um it's not a way of speaking that honors god right and so again um there are things that maybe are appropriate topics of conversation uh, between adults because they just need to have a conversation about something in openness and honesty. But I think we also have the um, illustration of, um, you know, we have people, we have the description of junior high locker room talk, and that is not an acceptable way of thinking about things. Um, yeah, Tina, go ahead. Oh, sure. We are in Ephesians chapter 5. Yeah. So we're in Ephesians 5, and we're talking about the subject of how we should talk to one another. 
and we're getting to the question of is it right to joke around with each other use sarcasm and what does that look like so that's what we're going to get um, if we keep coming down through the passage here um, verse 6 watch out for empty words um, verse 11 and 12 don't participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness but instead even expose them for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret and then at the end verse 19 which are to be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the lord always giving thanks so in terms of what Ephesians teaches us about the ways that we should talk and we shouldn't talk, we're supposed to speak truth, use conflict and disagreement as an opportunity to solve problems. We're supposed to think about the fact that God has forgiven us, so we need to forgive others and not be speaking toward them with a desire to see them hurt. We ought not to be speaking in a way that is desiring or promoting filthy uh, impurity and greed and immorality in a manner of life that is full of the content of things that are filthy and silly and coarse jesting, we are supposed to not just have our subject of conversation constantly be the evil things in the world, and we are instead to be filled with the Spirit and speaking things that are true, specifically God's Word, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to have an opportunity to give thanks, to glorify God, and to build each other up in walking with God more. Any quick thoughts on that before we go to a couple other passages? So now that's a really quick overview of a whole bunch of things. We could spend a lot of time in Ephesians 4 and 5, but any quick thoughts before we move on? All right. I wanted to mention these verses at the beginning, and I was double-checking the reference, so let me mention them now. Why does all this matter, the words that we say? Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 34, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is evil. So on the subject of being honest, our words are supposed to be true, such that we don't have to swear an oath. Well, I'm for real telling you the truth this time because most of the time we're not. That shouldn't be a characteristic of our lives. Also in Matthew 12, uh, verses uh, 30 through 37, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you in rebuke of the religious leaders attributing Jesus' work to demons, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings out what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So if Jesus is taking this as a very serious thing, that our words are something that God will hold us accountable for, we ought to give thought to the things that we say. Bob. I know. 
I tell you the truth. Yes. I know psychologically most people agree that if somebody says that, then they have a disposition of not telling the truth. And so they're trying to overcompensate in a sense. So yeah. Uh, I think in those instances, like Paul comes to mind with the Corinthians, he says it that way because they have taken an attitude that is he is not speaking the truth. And so he's emphasizing to them really strongly, I am speaking the truth. This is from God. You need to pay attention to it because there's been this undermining and rejecting of his apostolic authority. So, and then in a similar way, um, when he says to Timothy something like, this is a statement worthy of, that is true and worthy of full acceptance, I think it's almost like he's highlighting those words more than he's saying, I usually, I mean, not, instead of him saying, I'm usually lying, but this one thing is true. So would you say, from, a, from our perspective, it may only be relevant to say something like that if we are accused of not telling truth? Right, and in that instance, apart from God's working, they're still not going to believe us, but to the extent that you're being emphatic, I don't think it's wrong to be emphatic. Jonathan? I'm thinking it's also possible that what they're doing is contrasting themselves with the typical communication of the world. Yeah, I think he does that in some places too, Paul especially. Sure. Good, all right, so... Why does it matter? Because we'll be held accountable for our words and because God cares about the things that we say. We shouldn't make promises lightly, the whole idea of oaths, uh, Ecclesiastes 5, Matthew 5, etc. Ephesians 4, all the things we just talked about, speaking truth and in a proper manner. Go ahead and turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Very similar thing that Paul says to the church at Colossae in verses 5 through 11. Someone want to read 5 through 11 for us? Are you able to do that? Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Tina, go ahead. All right, so the particular, there's a lot of parallels between what we just saw in Ephesians 4 and 5 and what Paul says in a really summary kind of form here in Colossians 3. Same kind of idea, don't uh, let these things even be named among you, 
don't let your life be characterized these things because they were the way that you lived before, but they're not supposed to be that way any longer. Count your, the members of your body as dead to these things, verse 5. Why? Because living in that way is what brings God's wrath on those who are the sons of disobedience. And you used to be that way, but now you should put them all aside. A big part of putting them all aside is what we see, verse 8, which is the focus that I wanted to point us to. Put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. So anger is the idea of fury. Okay? And um, uh, sometimes we'll say it this way, in the heat of the moment, I said, whatever. We are supposed to, ha we are supposed to have a measure of self-control such that we don't just say the first thing that comes to our minds when we're upset. However, going back to the passage of where Jesus said, out of your heart, your mouth speaks, if what comes out when we are angry is all sorts of things that are displeasing to God, it shows us that there's a heart problem that needs to be dealt with. It's not ultimately a speech problem. And so that's why I think in verse 5, he says, count yourself as dead to these things, but what's sort of the checkpoint of knowing whether you're actively doing the first part, it's the way that you talk. If you are characterized by uh, wrath, which seems similar, but it's, 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 it's parallel, it's, it's intense desire and those sorts of things, um, it's, it's very similar in between wrath and fury or anger, anger and wrath, rather. Um, There's a desire, both of them sort of have this idea of, of expressing something in fury. Wrath, the way it's often used in the New Testament, has the idea of something associated with punishment, right? How many of you have ever been angry and had a desire to get back at someone in that moment? Yeah, okay. So we can try to do that through our words, right? So I think anger, if I was going to shade the difference between them, it would be anger would be more I just blurt out the first thing that comes to mind because I'm so upset, and wrath is there's a corresponding desire to punish someone in that moment of fury, right? God's wrath is just. Our wrath tends to be spur of the moment. Um, someone did this to me, I'm going to get back at them, right? Uh what about malice? Malice is a desire to see something bad happen to another person. If I know that if I say some particular thing, it will really hurt the person I'm talking to, that's, I think, what the idea of malice is getting at. So um, let me give you an illustration this way. Let's say that... Um, Let's just say that someone in your family, either the husband or the wife, comes from a background of, of, I don't know, of poverty, right? And you know that something that will really hurt that person is to say something about, well, yeah, that's just because you guys grew up with nothing at all. And so in the course of an argument, you, spur, you just blurt that out. If you are saying things, even if there is some measure of truth in them with the idea and the goal of causing injury and harm to that other person, that's not honoring to God. And so that is what he says to, you're supposed to put off. Um, slander. What's the difference between gossip and slander? 
Bob? Slander, you're trying to defame them. Okay. Here's how I would, I would explain it, and again, I don't know if this corresponds exactly to every dictionary definition, but like the sense of the word from the way that it tends to be used both in the Bible and a lot of other places would be, gossip is true things that you say to people you shouldn't be saying them true, to, or primarily true things. Slander is primarily false things that you're saying to try to drag someone's reputation down. So slander would be something like, you're repeating a rumor. Hey, did you hear that that politician was cheating on his spouse? Hey, did you hear that this person was stealing money from his work? Whether you have any idea whether it's true or not, that's slander, right? Gossip tends to be something that actually happened. Did you hear what she said to her husband? Did you see what that guy did? Your goal in gossip is not to try to solve the problem. It's to try to drag the other person down. But slander, you're dragging them down by repeating rumors and falsehoods. And gossip, you're dragging them down by repeating things that are true instead of going and dealing with the problem directly. Does that make sense, the difference between those two? He also says to avoid not just uh, slander, but also abusive speech. Our society is very sensitive to the idea of verbal and emotional abuse. And as a category that is a grounds for divorce, I think it is very much not spelled out in Scripture the way that things like um, failure to meet basic needs and breaking the marriage covenant through adultery or immorality or abandonment, like those sorts of things are very clearly laid out in Scripture as potentially grounds for divorce, right? Our society has added this category of verbal and emotional abuse. And here's, here's where I want to be careful. The same sort of disposition that leads someone to say, I care so little for my spouse that I'm going to go have an immoral relationship with another person, is the same sort of attitude that, that um, drives... A, a way of talking to one another that is abusive speech like this passage talks about. But it would, I think, tend to be a precursor to those sorts of things. Now, there's exceptions, right? There's people who would never say a bad word against their husband or wife and then still go out and commit immorality against them. There's someone that might never openly say a bad word depending on their personality and whether they're confrontational and all those sorts of things but then um, just disappear one day because they're so frustrated with the situation. But in my mind, I feel like the normal pattern is we start with things that we think that we can get away with, right? We think, I can't get away with hitting my spouse, but I can get away with calling you a stupid, lazy bum. I can't get away with openly committing immorality against you, but I can be constantly running you down. This is not only an application to the context of marriage because this sort of thing happens in all sorts of relationships, but it is a particular problem in the context of marriages in Christian homes because we know that it's wrong to commit immorality, we know that it's wrong to leave, but to the extent that we feel like we don't have grounds to get out of a difficult situation based on those things, 
but we can get away with just being miserably selfish in the way that we talk to each other, a passage like this argues very strongly, you cannot talk to each other that way. Children can't talk that way to parents. Parents can't talk that way to children. Uh, coworkers can't talk that way to each other. Um, and just go down the list of potential relationships that we encounter. We're not supposed to have abusive speech that is antagonistic and harsh and all of those sorts of things in a way that is dishonoring to God and not showing the love that is acceptable. Now, um, it's possible that this word uh, is restricted specifically to the idea of things that is foul or obscene, but the reality is foulness and obscenity and abusiveness and, and running people down kind of all go hand in hand, right? So those are the things that Colossians says here. Jump down to verse 17, what, or verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. Again, that parallels what we saw in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up us for us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So prayer is connected with speaking the right way, which in Paul's case was proclaiming the gospel. Quite honestly, in all of our cases, it's to proclaim the gospel. So how do we get out of a pattern of doing things in a wrong way that Colossians and Ephesians warn against? How do we get to the point where we are um, speaking things that encourage people and give grace and share the gospel and all those sorts of things? There has to be a significant amount of prayer and a saturation with the truth of God's word because that is what God uses, knowledge of his word empowered by the spirit to transform our lives from the wrong way of talking to the right way of talking. We already touched on Matthew 12. Uh, and I don't, we don't at the moment, I think, have time to get into James chapter 3. Lots of familiar verses there can't have good and evil words come out of the same mouth, just like you can't have bad and good water come out of the same spring, good and bad fruit off the same tree, all those sorts of things. But those are a lot of things in James about the tongue. Chapter 3, I would encourage you to go read that later. Let's talk about the two issues that are kind of the focus of where we are trying to get. Let's start with the one that I think is maybe a little bit easier from the perspective of, I don't know, ruling it out or defining boundaries for it. So uh, look at Acts 23. Acts 23, verses 1 through 5. Paul is making his defense before the council in Jerusalem. He says, I've lived my life with a good conscience. Verse 1. High priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. 
People argue about what, exactly what's going on here. My best understanding of it would be Paul's making his defense, the high priest in violation of the law, which says you're supposed to let people lay out their case and not strike them for no reason, um, has someone strike Paul in the mouth because he feels like he's speaking blasphemy and Paul's just speaking the truth. Paul has this response of God will strike you and you're violating the law. He said, are you accusing God's high priest, the people around him? And Paul says, I was not aware that he was the high priest. Paul, at the very least, seems to be using an example of irony here to illustrate the fact that here's a high priest who doesn't care about justice, God's law, or any of the things a high priest is supposed to care about, which is why he's behaving in the way that he is toward Paul. Paul does a similar thing. Let me give you another illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 8, Paul says, You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us, and indeed I wish you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Verse 10, we are fools, but you are prudent. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And then he says, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul appears to be using either sarcasm or irony, and I would argue that it's a kind of irony that the Corinthians have basically said, we have all the answers, we are spiritually mature, we don't need you anymore, Paul. And Paul essentially says, that's great that you have everything together and that life is going well for you and that you're not suffering because, I mean, your attitude is if you're suffering, God must be unhappy with you. So Paul is suffering, so God's unhappy with him and, and all of these sorts of things. And Paul's just pointing out the reality, you don't know as much as you do and the things that you are saying are not actually true. And so he's trying to highlight that for them. Uh, we see examples of this, and there's a uh, an article that I'll I'll put in the back. You're welcome to look at it or, or look it up. Some people don't love the website gotquestions.org, but I think it's a good starting place for saying here's a sampling of passages about a subject that you might have a question about about the Bible. Here's at least some verses to go look at. Whether or not you agree with their conclusion is not the point that I'm making. What I'm saying is they tend to do a good job of laying out some sample passages for you to go and look at. So, here's what they say. The question is, is satire or sarcasm ever appropriate? This would be easy enough to resolve if not for the fact that God uses satire in several places in Scripture. Now, was it wrong for Paul to do this? They say a little bit later in the article, Paul's words are satirical but not sarcastic. They are spoken in love to beloved children. In other words, Paul is using words that might in the moment be hurtful toward the goal of kind of a harsh rebuke to say, stop thinking this way, acting this way, continuing in pride this way. And God can use it as an occasion of repentance. Here's what tends to happen in sarcasm. I want to make myself look good and the other person look stupid. Right? So there's a difference of motivation and there's a question of boundaries. How far do we go, right? Paul, for the most part, doesn't talk this way, but there are occasional exceptions where he does, that at least that are recorded for us in scripture. 
And so there is a question of how often are we talking in this way? What's the goal for which we're talking this way? And is it rooted out of, you know, what sort of situation is Paul in when he says these things to them? I'm your spiritual father. There's no legitimate grounds that you can accuse me of misrepresenting things in the way that I'm talking to you. Usually we use sarcasm to cover up the fact that we have a problem, the other person has brought it up, but we want to shift the attention to them, right? Paul's not doing that. Paul's saying, you're accusing me falsely of not caring for you, abandoning you, not telling you the truth, whatever. None of those things are true. Here's the sin that you're persisting in that I really want, by God's grace, you to see and turn away from. So I'm going to go to this extreme length in order to help you repent. That's completely different from the, the parameters that we usually have for sarcasm. We don't have time to look at all the examples of this, but in the Old Testament, God does a similar thing through the words of the prophets. And again, I would go back to Ephesians 4 and say, to the extent that you feel that you are speaking prophetically, as in like one of the prophets in the Old Testament, to someone who's living in a sinful way, heed Jesus' warning about dealing with your own sin along with and more emphatically than and more thoroughly than you're trying to deal with someone else's sin, the log and the speck idea, right? And recognize this is not something that God calls you to do 24-7, right? Because we see Elijah saying to the prophets of Baal, hey, your God took a trip, he's taken a nap, he's gone to the bathroom. That's why he's not answering your prayer. But we don't see him talking that way to the people of Israel 24-7, Right? We see occasional instances at key points at which someone is emphatically calling someone to repentance. This idea of, of, of irony or satire or, or language that can in the moment actually be hurtful with the goal of, of uh, repentance. So a verse in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If we only ever say things that people like and want to hear, we're probably not helping them. But if we take that as justification to just talk whatever way we want and constantly be saying things that could potentially be hurtful without any consideration of what we're doing, that doesn't honor God. All right. Uh, again, you could read through that article, and I'm sure we could have more conversation. I'll take your question in just a minute. I've got to get into this other thing because we're already right at the end of our time. Let me get to the question of joking, and then you'll probably have another question for me and then, or several other people too. Um, is joking a sin, right? So going back to our question of the subject of joking, here's what I would say. Um, joking from the perspective of uh, is it ever wrong to make a joke? We see a verse in Proverbs, laughter does the heart good like medicine, right? So laughter and an occasion for laughter are not in and of themselves evil things, right? But going back to some of the things that we saw in Ephesians and in Colossians and looking at the attitude of Jesus and the disciples and thinking especially about a few verses here, um, and I'll just have you write these down. We don't have time to turn to all of them. And I'll, I'll share these in an email later as well. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8, 2 Timothy 4, 5, 1 Peter 3, 13, 4, 7, and 5, 8. And like I said, I'll share these later because you probably didn't have a chance to write all those down. Here's the illustration I'm trying to make. Each of those passages talk about this idea of living and, and, and walking and speaking in a way that is sober. 
And so I think the thing that was convicting to me looking at this topic and thinking about sort of the the disposition or attitude or feel you get reading through the New Testament, it would be this. If Christians are supposed to walk in a sober way, and if my way that I talk to people, whether from the pulpit or in conversation with people at church or just in all of life, if it's only ever joking and messing around, I'm not living in a sober way and I'm not going to have good opportunities to connect with people in order to minister to them. So, you know, we've had this conversation before sometimes. We all know each other. We've been in the church together for a while. We all know each other, all these sorts of things. If, if, if you know someone really well, it's easy to think, well, we can just joke around because we know each other really well. Uh, and to some extent that's true, but the danger is that familiarity with someone can lead you to say things that maybe you ought not to be saying. Connected with that, familiarity with someone when someone suddenly shows up who's not a part of your group, that knows what you mean by it and the context and all those sorts of things, um, it can easily be taken the wrong way. And to the extent that we're so focused on, I want to enjoy my time with the people I know and spend time with regularly, instead of, I want to minister and help the people that God has put around me, that's something that I think we need to wrestle with. So, for example, if, if you walk into church and and you see someone else walk into church and that person looks really discouraged and you just sort of brush it off and you say, well, yeah, they're probably discouraged, they're probably struggling with something, but I'm just going to laugh around and have a good time and not really ever ask him the important question. Is joking in that moment a sin? No. But to the uh, a sin of commission, like God said, don't do this, no. But it may very well lead to a sin of omission. In other words, God says minister to the needs of the people around you. And if you're so focused on laughing and having a good time that you don't do that, you're not fulfilling what God called you to do, even if you're not crossing the line and doing something God said not to do. So that I think the aspect of sobriety, of saying, and, and you know, we look at the New Testament, their context is, at first we're accepted by the people, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, maybe 5, then it shifts to, the people start to not like us. The religious leaders hate us. This wave of persecution breaks out in the early church. To the extent that the church has experienced or had, a, had an awareness or attitude that we're in a time of war, opposition, persecution, difficulty, you need to get ready. Brayden and I took a hunter safety course uh, recently. And they pretty much said at the beginning of the course, if we see you guys messing around, especially when you're at the gun range, you're out of here and we don't care. There's not going to be any second chances. To the extent that we are, and I'm not, this has nothing to do with guns and all that sort of thing, it's just the idea of if there's a situation that's potentially dangerous and that's supposed to be training you for something really important later on and you're just laughing and having a good time in the middle of it, you're not having the focus of when Paul says something like, live your life as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We just need to wrestle with, I think, personally, 
the way that I talk to other people, the way that I gather with other people, if we're getting together with people from the church all week long and we're having opportunities to have serious conversations and then we happen to have a lighter, more lighthearted conversation when we see that person at church, that's one thing. But if our only point of contact with someone from church is on Sunday and all we do is laugh and joke around, we're probably not ministering to that person the way that we ought to be. There's a ton more we could say on this subject, but um, I think those are some of the things I really wanted to highlight. What's the goal of irony or satire? Is it to lead to repentance done with the spirit of love and done sparingly? What's the appropriateness of joking? Is it interfering with our ability to minister well to that person who just walks in or people that we know who are going through a difficult moment? Um, do we have the attitude of soldiers in a time of war or you know, people, you know, stand-up comedians? And do we, do we ask ourselves in this moment, what is it that God wants me to say, which ties back to the first principles? All right, Bob, you had a question a few minutes ago. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, righteous anger is a focus on God being offended and uh, taking action. Most of our anger is we were offended. And similarly, it seems like, you know, the satire that Paul or Scripture uses is focused on a righteous rebuke, whereas sarcasm that we generally use is to actually hurt a person or make them look bad. And I would add that joking tends to be a focus on it makes me feel good if people like the things that I say, whereas what that person actually needs often is me doing the hard work of asking questions to draw out the thing they're struggling with so that we can pray with them and give thanks to God. And if we short-circuit that process by only ever just laughing and hanging out kind of attitude, we're probably not accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish. So could we say anything rooted in self is probably likely not good? That's kind, of, that's kind of a truism from the Bible, right? But it's a fair point to consider, right? So if we were going to say, what are questions to evaluate the way I'm talking? Am I accomplishing God's goals by what I say? Which means, am I saying the right thing and am I not saying the wrong thing? And why am I saying this thing at this moment? Is it because it makes me feel good or people will like me? Or is it because it's going to accomplish God's goals, right? And there's lots of different ways we could evaluate it, but maybe those are some starting point questions. All right. We're supposed to start the service in seven minutes, but I talked a long time. I'm still gauging how many passages I can have us turn to for these because the problem with topics, I talked about this with Braden when he wanted to do a topical message for the preaching competition at school. I said the problem with a topical message is not that you don't have enough material. It's accurately using the verses you turn to and paring it down from all the things the Bible has to say on because you could spend days on a lot of these topics. So questions you guys have? Any things as we wrap up here? Yes. Going by the assumption that all of us, or most of us, struggle with this to a certain extent, what would you say is the best way to combat it? Uh, if each of us has the attitude that we are willing to, when someone is not being helpful, to have a response of, hey, you know, that wasn't helpful. Or, you know, last week when I was really discouraged about this thing that was going on at work and you were, you, you didn't ask me what was going on. I really wish you would have asked me. I think to some extent it's the person who's not benefiting from right talk confronting the person who's being careless. And to another extent, it would be the person who's being careless, being willing and open to have someone come alongside and say, hey, 
or, or even just to turn the conversation, right? So if I'm in a mode of joking and laughing around and somebody walks up and they said, hey, can we put that on hold for a second? And let me ask you this, because I've really been thinking about this and this is really important. It's some serious topic about something that I've been reading the Bible this week or something I've been praying really hard about or something like that. Sometimes it just takes one person stepping up and shifting the conversation away from this, we're having a good time, to not that we can't have a good time, but that we're going to talk about something that matters and is serious and important. So maybe a couple of those things would be a good starting point. Jonathan. Yeah, let me throw this out too, because this brings up another point. I think one of the things that maybe churches like ours struggle with is because we're very committed to the idea of what does the Bible say, what is true, all those sorts of things. Sometimes we don't do a good job of listening to someone sharing a perspective that at first glance it sounds like we would disagree with. And so to the extent that we can take that pause, especially in moments when we know we're going to get fired up about something like... Let's say you have a really strong feeling about the timing of the rapture and someone walks in and they're like, I think the rapture happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. Our immediate response would be like, no, it's this and it. Calm down. Take a step back. Listen to what the person has to say. Possibly even think about it and don't say anything at that moment and then come back around. Because to the extent that we... If we immediately jump on someone who says something about a topic that we think we're going to disagree with, instead of hearing them out, we're not taking that pause. Sometimes it's a, an issue of where someone is just trying to think about something out loud. Sometimes it's a, where someone is struggling with something. And, and if we don't take the moment to just wait and let them work through it and then give ourselves time to think about it and pray about it, God, how should I respond to this? Yeah, that's another instance where that pause can be really important. So, Good. All right, any last things? about God helping us to grow in this area? Yes, absolutely. All right. You can come in, Alberta and Karen and everybody else. So we just went long in our Sunday school hour. <laughs>